He knows your name. And he knows mine too. Wow, what a privilege the creator of the universe and king of all creation knows my name. Good morning, friends. Good to see you today. Um, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's on page 902. If you want to use that pew Bible that's there provided for you, page 902, 1 Corinthians 13. And in case you're wondering, hey, I, you know, I thought we had a preaching team here, then we take turns and whatnot. We do. That hasn't gone away. Uh, last week, you know, uh, Pastor Tim Volstrom was scheduled to preach um, last Sunday, and he had a great message that he was going to share with us. He's been dealing with illness, and it finally hit him so badly that he could not be with us last week. Well, this week, Pastor Larry Howard was scheduled to be in the pulpit. All week, it was looking like he was ready to go. Everything was going to be okay. And then yesterday, he came down with some new symptoms that just kept him from uh, being able to be here today. So, you know, we try and, we try and uh, do everything around here in decency and in order, but sometimes you have to remember, these are human people up here, right? And we get ill and get sick. And so, um, let's just work together today. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture and uh, hopefully we can uh, kind of have a conversation here today to talk about this idea of love. But before we do, before we jump into that, uh, you know, we prayed for Pastor Tim in his absence last week and for those that are ill. And we want to do the same thing for both of them, Pastor Larry and Pastor uh, Tim, uh, in their absence, but also for everyone. And those of you watching online that may be too sick to be here today, we want to pray for you and for God's healing upon your life. So why don't we begin with that, with a word of prayer, and ask for God's presence here as we look at his uh, word together, but also for healing for those that are, that are sick. Our Father in heaven, we come to you, the one who knows our name. Uh, and you do. You see every tear that falls. And, and Father, I think you even see every cough <laughs> that comes from our lungs and, and every concern that we feel about the health of our family, our church family that's hurting today, Father. We want to remember Pastor Tim and Pastor Larry. And we ask you, Father, please, according to your great mercy, please heal them. Give them great recovery. For those, Father, that may be watching online today and those that we know, our family, friends, church family here that are sick, even hospitalized today, Oh, Father of heaven, please have mercy upon them. Heal their bodies. And Father, we know that you will fulfill your promise. We're asking, please do it. Fill their hearts with peace that surpasses all understanding. We trust in you today, Father, that you will care for this flock uh, in these very challenging days because you are God, our healer, the one who is merciful and kind and gracious in all you do. We thank you for this time. Now open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things out of your law. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You're probably familiar with it. Um, you've probably heard it read before. It's one of the favorite passages to be read at, at weddings today, 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter. And, and for those of you that may not be aware, in about two weeks is a very special day. Niner fans, I'm not talking about the Super Bowl. I know you're anticipating that, hoping that your team will be in it in a couple of weeks. I'm talking about Valentine's Day. It's coming up soon, so if you do anything to prepare for that, now's the time to start thinking about it. But I was thinking about this subject of love, this subject of love. And when you think about love in our day, what does that mean? Think about the instances that you hear the word or think of the idea of love and the context that, that you're in, work, school, uh, neighborhood, places where you shop. What was this concept of love? What I think we've seen over the last couple of years is this kind of attitude about love that has become very ambiguous, very unclear. 
And because there's been so much hurt, so much pain, so much that's been going on uh, in our society, in our culture, even in our homes, and even in our community, we start to feel almost this callousness to the world. A callousness to those around us because it's been really painful, right? And as I was just looking over this passage just last night and this morning and thinking about what we could take a look at today, I I was reminded of a song that I think maybe like half of you might remember and half of you might not. It's from the great singer, philosopher, Tina Turner, right? (laughs) What's love got to do with it, right? And I think I remember her so much because her big hair kind of epitomized the style of the 80s, right? Uh, But she had that song, What's Love Got to Do With It? And the song, if you're not familiar with it, and those of you that are, you're going to be singing it to yourself all day. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> but if you're not familiar with the song, it's, it's about, uh, she's singing about this physical attraction that two people have together, right? And you just, you know, you just, you know, go for that physical attraction because, I mean, really, what's love got to do with it? Why take it any further than just that merely physical attraction? And, and it seems kind of shallow, right? Seems kind of shallow, but when you listen to the chorus, you understand, really, I think, why she's saying what she's saying. She goes, oh, what's love got to do, got to do with it? I'm not going to sing it, okay? (laughs) What's love but a second-hand emotion? What's love got to do, got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? And so we see really what it comes down to. This song is really not about that, you know, I, I don't care about that love stuff. I'm just caring about the physical, physical attraction. No, it's really, I don't want to be vulnerable. Why would you ever want to make yourself vulnerable in love? Because it, it, the, the heartbreak and heartache of being broken is so painful. And so I think that's really kind of something that I think we're experiencing in our day and age, right? What's love got to do with it? You know, we, we see all of these, these, these conflicts all of these protests, riots, anger, uh, disagreements over politics. We see f- families even, even broken over holiday meals because they cannot see eye to eye. And so you just start to put up these walls and you just start to callous yourself and you start to get in this defensive position. And I've seen it so much from all of us, metaphorically speaking, where you start to get into something that is beyond the weather, beyond just how's the game or whatever. And you start to get down there and you start to see in each other We've got this defensive posture. What's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it? If you're going to survive in this day and age, the best thing you could do is harden yourself so that you don't get hurt and put up your dukes so that you can be prepared for a fight. Well, I think we're going to see from 1 Corinthians 13 today, this passage of Scripture from God's Word addresses this very idea. So, no disrespect to you, Miss Miss Tina Turner, but uh, what's love got to do with it? I think the Bible would tell us everything. Everything. Love has everything to do with it. We're going to take a look at 1 Corinthians 13, but before we do, I want to give you the big idea for our our text today, and what I think the Lord wants to see from us is this. The big idea is this. Love is always the answer. Love is always the answer. And so before I go any farther, let's, let's read the text of Scripture, and then we'll get to see how this works itself out together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, actually. We're going to begin in verse 31. And before I do, i got to remember, just a real quick context. Paul's writing to a church in the city of Corinth, not far from Athens in Greece. Okay, and in fact, if you want to hear about all the Corinthians and how lousy they were, and, well, they were believers, but how, uh, you know, disobedient they were, and how much Paul had to really write to them to correct their thinking and their beliefs and their behavior, you can go back and check out 
had a series that was preached from this pulpit years ago. Pastor Phil Howard preached Once Corinthians, Now Californians. And you can get all the context about all the issues that the Corinthians had. But one of the issues that they had, aside from immorality and aside from improper thinking about, you know, having divisions over who's more important in their, in their ministry, was an idea about gifts. You see, back in the early church, there were, I mean, spiritual gifts and miraculous gifts were just exploding because the apostles, they were going around and preaching at all these different cities and churches. And as they were doing that, to authenticate the message of the gospel that they were proclaiming, God allowed them to, 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 to be a part of some miraculous signs, speaking in languages, human languages that they'd never heard before, being able to have uh, wisdom and knowledge and prophecies to be able to, to speak God's word as it was revealed to them for God people at that time. And I, the Corinthians, they thought this was like the coolest thing ever. I mean, this is like, let's go to the circus this week and see what God's going to do now. It's, it's amazing stuff, right? And they had an inappropriate understanding of what this was all about. And Paul says, you're fighting about all these things. You're elevating one gift over another, and it's creating all this division. But I want to show you a better way. And that's where we come to in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. And this is what he writes. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain Nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Our big idea today is this, love is always the answer. And what I'd like for, to do for you today, and again, we're just hanging out together, I guess, in some regards, looking at the scripture together. I don't have anything totally elaborate for you, just three things. You could probably see it for yourself. First of all, verses one through three, we'll see that love is always better. Love is always better. Secondly, we'll see that love is always clear, clear. And finally, simply, love is always Love never ends. It's always. So let's take a look at this together. Love is always better. Love is always better. Verse one again, uh, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. These are really super powerful, miraculous signs 
These, these tongues, if, if you remember at Pentecost, back in Acts chapter 2, you can take a look at it later. The Holy Spirit comes down from heaven as promised. Jesus said, I'm going away, but I'm promising that the Spirit, he's going to come and he's going to be upon you. And the Spirit came and came to dwell inside the apostles and there were these manifestations of these tongues of fire that were residing upon them. And all of a sudden, they started to speak in languages that they've never spoken before, right? It's like me being able to just instantly being able to speak like Vietnamese or something and preach the gospel to you, though I've never learned it before. And they were preaching all in all these languages to all these people, and they were hearing the good news about Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, and the promise of the Spirit in their own language, and they were blown away. And so as the apostles are spreading the ministry of the gospel around the world, they're going around speaking in these tongues of men. But Paul says this, even if we were to do that, or even if I was to speak in a language that no one knew, and it was this angelic, heavenly language, if I were to speak in that language, if I were to show off these manifestations of power under the Spirit, but he says this, but if I don't have love, guess what that sounds like? It's just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I mean, these are great manifestations of power, but Paul is saying to us here, love is better. Love is better. Well, love is also better than infinite knowledge. He goes on to say in verse 2, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, he's saying if I've got great revelation to speak to you, things that no one's ever heard before, secret knowledge that's delivered directly from God, if he texts me or emails me or does something directly to me and I show it off to you, but I don't have love, it's nothing. It's nothing. Why? Because love is better. But he goes on to describe faith. He says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. I mean, this is big time faith, friends. I mean, some of you have gifts of faith because sometimes I've got to fight pessimism in my own heart. Some of you know this about me, right? I, I, a lot of times I see the glass half empty, but some of you are like, no, we can do this. We can take the mountain. We can go get this. We can accomplish this. And I'm like, wow, look at all that faith. But if it doesn't include love, Paul says it's, it's nothing. How about this one? This is amazing to me. Verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, friends, think about this. I mean, if we were to quantify, like, how much could we show or manifest our commitment to the cause, our commitment to the mission, our commitment to the glory of Jesus Christ? I mean, I don't think you could say, well, I'd give up everything that I had. I'd sell my house, my car, all my possessions, and give that money to, and resources to the cause of the mission. Wow, what a sacrifice. Well, And somebody up says, says well, I'll go a step further. I'll do all that, and if it were asked of me, if I was given the choice to either deny Christ or to, or to to say, no, I'll stay committed to Christ. If that meant I would have to be burned at the stake, I I'm willing to do that. Whoa, that's intense. That's amazing. What a commitment. But Paul says this, it's possible to do all those things and yet lack love. And Paul says, here's what you to think of it. It's nothing. It's nothing. Why? Love is always better. Love is always better. You know, friends, we can look around here and think about all the different things that we're doing for the cause of Jesus. Some are doing more. Some are doing less. Some are up here on a stage with a microphone. Some are in the nursery right now caring for babies and holding them and loving them and wiping their noses and, and feeding them Cheerios and whatever. 
But the important thing isn't whether you've got a big uh, audience in front of you or if it's wiping the nose of a little one. Is it done in the name of love? Paul says, love is better. Love is better. The kinds of people that God's looking for around this place aren't the people with the platforms and the microphones and all of these things. He's looking for the people that are loving people in ordinary ways. Serving, loving, loving kids, loving youth. I'm so glad. I I think about my kids' own small group leader in youth ministry, and I think, wow, I'm so blessed and thankful for them. They love my kids. I can see it. And Jesus sees that. And Jesus says, that's better. That's better than anything you could do. Some of you may feel like, what do I have to offer to the church? What do I have to offer Jesus? I'm really nothing special. Listen to the words of Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, if you love me, people in my name, that's better than anything bigger that you think you could do. Love is always better. Love is always better. Love is always the answer. Love is better. Secondly, love is always clear. It's always clear. We'll see that in verses four through seven. But think about how love is used in our day and age. It's so ambiguous. It's so fuzzy. It's so hard to, to really grasp and understand what people mean when they say they love you, right? Or, or I love this person. In fact, we've come down to it where all we could really say because we're so unwilling to define love is we say love is love. Love is love. If two people or multiple people, if they, whatever they say, if they say they love each other, you just have to take that at face value. You can't ask, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, what about this? What about that? No, no, no. You can't question it. Love is love. And so it's become just this big, ambiguous blob that's out there. But love is always the answer means that love is also clear. And Paul, I mean, he gives us just these clear definitions and descriptions of what love looks like. First of all, these are just my own summaries. I, I think love is gentle. Look at verse 4 again. Love is patient and kind. Love is patient and kind. Boy, would people know you as a loving person because they see, wow, they're so patient and long-suffering. They're willing to wait for me even when they know that I'm not going nearly as fast as they would like me to. You know, I, I wish I would get sanctified, which means becoming more and more looking like Jesus on a daily basis, right? As he's conforming me to his image and, and the sin is getting confessed and repented of and I'm, I'm becoming more and more obedient. You know, I, sometimes I wish, man, I wish this process would go a lot faster. And you know what? I think you probably would say the same thing. You know what? Matthew said that remark to me, and he still doesn't get it. That is such a selfish thing for him to say. I wish that God would speed up that process with him. And until he figures it out, I'm not going to even talk to him anymore. And sometimes I feel the same way about you. And I'm not even going to talk about how we feel about our spouses, right, and families, right? Lord, would you speed up this process here? But love is patient. Love is kind. Love is gentle. I'm willing to wait and be long-suffering with you, not because I don't care, not because I'm indifferent, not because I'm apathetic, but because that's what love does. It's patient and kind. Do people see you as a kind person? The kind of person that's meek and gentle, that I'm willing to give you things even at cost to myself because I love you. You know, we live in a day and age where we want to put parameters, we want, uh, and, and, and sometimes these are helpful, right? But we, we want to put alarms on everything. 
We got alarms on our houses, alarms on our cars. We lock in our phones. We're like, it's like we keep protecting ourselves and defending ourselves and putting up those dukes, right? No, no, no. I got to defend myself. This is a hard world, dog-eat-dog world. Paul says, love is kind. Love is generous. Love is patient. Well, we also see that love is humble. Love is humble. Take a look again at verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. That's if, if you don't have or you have, right? Love doesn't envy. Man, I can't believe he got ahead of me. He got that job. He got that position. He got that new car or, or whatever. Oh, man, look, his kids, nothing's wrong with his kids. Why does my kid have to be in the hospital? Why does my spouse have to be in the hospital? And we become resentful and envious of one another, of what we don't have, and we wish we had what they had. But love also isn't boastful. Maybe you did get that promotion. Maybe you did get that job. Maybe your kids have not been in the hospital. Maybe they've been healthy. Maybe you were able to save up money to buy that house. You walking around pretending like you actually earned that yourself and not recognizing that it's a gift from our Creator. See, love isn't envious. And it's not boastful. I'm not walking around here pretending like I should be the one with everything. In fact, I'm generous. Love is humble. It does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Boy, we live in a rude day and age, right? Rude. It's amazing to see the things that, and hear the things that we're willing to say to one another. The things that we're willing to do with hand gestures to one another. We're a rude and arrogant nation, a rude and arrogant people. You are, I am. We, we tend to be rude to one another. Think about this. If, if you're to go out to lunch right after this service, what would your server think of you? Would he or she see love, kindness, patience? Would they see rudeness and arrogance? Oh, you know what? It, it took 15 minutes too long for me to get my meal. Or you know what? It, it wasn't exactly how I ordered it. So you need to take it back. And guess what? I'm going to cut your tip in half. Are we rude and arrogant? Are we kind and humble? Uh, love is humble in this. It's, it does not insist in its own way, it says there in verse 5. Does not insist on its own way way. It's not narcissistic. You know, sometimes in our homes, and, and you know, we believe around here that, that God's been clear that God has created male and female equally, absolutely, perfect, uh, equally in value. But God has also designed like different roles in, in the home and the husband to lead a home and, and for uh, elders to be men in, in the church, right? But sometimes men, we could abuse that, right? Oh, I'm the leader. That means I always get my way. That's so narcissistic, men. That's not love. That's not leading. That's not love. That's, that's being rude. That's being narcissistic. That's insisting on your own way. But the, the way of love says, I'm willing to give up my preferences for you, for you because I love you. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5, gentlemen, if you're a husband in this room today or aspire to be one someday, what does Ephesians 5 say our role is? Love your wives how? By laying down your life for her. It's not narcissistic. It's not insisting on your way, but laying down your life. Love is always the answer, and love is always clear. It's gentle, it's humble. Well, next, it's, it's forgiving even when wronged. Love is forgiving even when wronged. 
Look what it says at the end of verse 5. It's not irritable or resentful. Are you one that uh, gets offended real easily? Do you get offended real easily? Yeah, I, I, I tend to be sometimes too. But, but this kind of love is, it's not irritable. It doesn't get irritated quickly. You know, you could say a lot of things that maybe I really just flat out don't agree with. But guess what? Because I love you, I'm not going to get my feathers ruffled. You're not going to see my dukes up, go up real fast. I'm willing to wait and be patient and not just always look for the things that we disagree about, but to say, you know what? The last nine things I didn't agree about, but guess what? I love you because I know that you're committed to Jesus. And that's what takes precedence over everything. It's not irritable. It's not irritable. And it's not resentful. It's not someone that holds on to a grudge or holds on to bitterness for days or weeks or months or years. And for some of us in this room, we've been hanging on to things even decades that we're not willing to let go. Past hurts, it's resentful, it's wrong, it's sinful, and it's time that we come as God's people to say, enough is enough, love is the answer. Therefore, love says that I'm going to forgive give even when I'm wronged. Who's God calling you to forgive today? To call on the phone to say, you know what? We, we've been out of sorts for way too long. It's time for me to confess and let you know where the conflict is because I love you. Love is always clear, always clear. Verse six uh, says uh, that it, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. What that means is that love is honest even when it hurts. Love is honest even when it hurts. Now, I'm a sports fan, and there's something about being a fan of, 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 of teams that it's like, not only do you like your team to win, but you love when your rival loses, right? right? And I love that so much. It's pretty pathetic in me, actually. And I'm trying to repent of it. But how, I, it, that's one thing to say in the sports world, but what about with each other? The people that we feel like, you know what, that, that guy, he's got, boy, I can't wait to watch him fall. He's been put up on a pedestal, and I'm going to be there, and I'm going to rejoice when he falls flat on his face. That's not love, friends. That's resentment. That's rejoicing, not in, uh, it's not rejoicing in the truth, but it's rejoicing in wrongdoing. It's rejoicing when seeing ill come upon others. It's not loving, friends. It's not the way of God. Even if they do deserve it, what, what, what good do we have in rejoicing over that? I think our, our, our response ought to be, thank you, God, for your mercy. I'm probably deserving of the same thing. Please open their eyes to see the error of their ways. I, I think that's the more loving thing to do, not rejoicing in wrongdoing. Well, not only that, but love rejoices with the truth. And I would say, I, I think that means even when it hurts. Even when it costs you something. Even when you know, I, man, I don't know if I can bring this out because I got to protect my own skin. No, love says, I love the truth and I'm willing to be honest even if it's going to cost me something right now because I love you and I love all of us around here and I want the truth to come out even if it hurts. This love is clear, friends. It's clear. It's not ambiguous. It's not just this fuzzy blob that's out there. Love is love, but love is clear. Amen? This one really got to me. Uh, I, I think that love is optimistic. I think that love is optimistic. Look at verse 7 with me again. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. And I think this one really stood out to me when I think about our day and age. Friend, I don't know about you, but I'm tired of being lied to. 
I'm tired of being lied to. We're not sure who to trust anymore. When it comes to our leaders, government, news, we don't know who to trust anymore. And our suspicion level has gone way, way up. And what's happened is that we become suspicious of everyone, including one another. But what I see here is that love bears all things. Even when you do something against me, I'm optimistic about you. Why? Because I believe God the Spirit is in you if you are in Jesus Christ. And even if you were to wrong me, I'm willing to bear with you. Why? And bear your wrongs against me. Why? Because I know that there's a judge in heaven who will vindicate me in his time. Vengeance is his, not mine. So I'm willing to bear all things. Love believes all things. You know, we size each other up. We get into rooms with each other, and like I was saying before, we get past that first layer of conversation, we get down to deeper matters, and we're looking for trigger words. We're looking for different phrases that they may use. Oh man, they said this. They must be really woke then. Oh, oh no, they said this. They must be a racist. And we start putting each other into categories, waiting, waiting to catch them. We're putting the bait out there to say, what do they think about this? What do they think about that? Boom, categorize. They're out. No, love believes all things. Love believes all things. I'm going to believe that you want to speak truth to me and that I want to speak truth to you. Friends, we're in such a suspicious day and age that we've become, we're becoming callous. The temptation is there for us to become callous and we stop trusting even one another within the family of God. We stop trusting each other even over dinner tables. And over cups of coffee. We stop trusting each other in workplaces and in homes. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love is full of hope. That even when you fail or even when I fail, I believe that God has a future for you. I believe that God has a future for us. I hope you believe that God has a future for me. I hope you believe that God has a future for your family. I hope that you believe that God has a future for this church. I hope that you believe that God has a future for this county and this state and this nation. Why? Because he's a great God. I believe love hopes all things and love endures all things. Boy, we can be like like sandpaper toward one another, can't we? Sandpaper rubbing against sandpaper. Boy, that's abrasive. But what happens after sandpaper rubs against sandpaper for a while? It smooths out. We've got to endure with each other. That's what love does. Yeah, I'm rough around the edges, but guess what? So are you. We love each other. Enduring all things. That's what love does because love is clear. This is what love is. It's not conditional. Love says, I'm going to stick with you because we've made a commitment to one another. And our commitment is united in Jesus Christ. As a staff, over the last couple of years, we've, we've actually brought in some ideas to, to help us think about how we work around here. And they're called plumb lines. And they're really just mottos that answer the question of how we do things, okay? These plumb lines. And I'm not going to share many of them with you. I want to just share one that's really stood out to me because it's impacted me deeply. And I always find its root right in this verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 7. And here's the plumb line. It's this. Trust before suspicion. Trust before suspicion. Now, it's not naivety. It's not ignorance. If there's reasons that you see that to be suspicious, that's fine. But it's trust before suspicion. Here's how it's defined. When there's a gap between our expectations and our experience, we always put trust and not suspicion in the gap. 
We give people the most charitable assumption. There's love. Charitable assumption when our expectations are not met. Friends, what happens to you when your expectations aren't met? What happens when me, when I don't meet your expectations? What happens when your spouse or children or brothers and sisters and and coworkers and bosses and presidents and governors, what happens when they don't meet your expectations? I believe 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, because we're a people of love, we're called to put trust in the gap and not suspicion. This is what it means to love. Are we a trusting people? Can I take what you say at face value? Are you already going to question me because you've got your dukes up living in such a defensive world that's made you calloused? That's not what love is. Love is optimistic. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So we've seen love is always better. Always better. No matter what you could do around here, love's the best. Second of all, love is clear crystal clear. We can see what it looks like. And thirdly, love is always. Love is always. It never goes away, and it's never going to. It says there in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13 that love never ends. And he starts to go on and he says prophecies, they're going to pass away. Tongues, they're going to cease. And and knowledge, it's going to pass away too. Why? Because we know in part and we prophesy in part. But there's coming a day when the perfect is going to come. And what he's saying here is this. It's like, look, we need preaching right now. We need prophecies, tongues. We need, you know, anything that you could get. We need that revelation in this era, in this day and age. Why? Because it's incomplete. We're still living in this broken world. We're still living in a time where Jesus has risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, and we're awaiting for him to fulfill his promise to come to the earth. But in the meantime, we're waiting, and it's just a partial fulfillment of getting to see God's kingdom in all of its glory. So it's partial right now. Guess what? In the kingdom, I'm not sure there's going to be a whole lot of preaching. There might be, we might be proclaiming to one another, hey, God is great. God is good. He's awesome. Jesus is Lord. He rescued us from sin and death. I think we'll do a lot of preaching to one another, but there won't be the kind of preaching that will happen to say, it's time to repent of sin. And, and I need to tell you what God is like, because we're going to say, there he is right there. We're going to walk with him and talk with him. But today, we live in a world of partiality. We, we see some things, but we don't have the full thing. And he says those gifts, those signs, they're all going to pass away. In fact, they're incomplete because they only give us a partial picture of what's to come. But there's something that will remain. Something that will outlast this age. And it's love. Love will endure beyond this age. And he gives two analogies here. First, he says it's, it's like, a childhood, like a child growing up to adulthood. And it's amazing to me. You know, I feel like I've blinked and my kids were like, you know, four or five years old, holding their hands across the street. Now they're teenagers. I've got a young adult. And now they're actually driving cars down the street. It's like, it's, it's freaking me out. I'm, my mind is blown here. But it's awesome to watch them grow and to go from childhood to adulthood. And what Paul is saying there, he's, he's saying, right now, it's like we're, we're living in this age where we need the basics 
We need revelation. We need knowledge. We need preaching. Why? Because we don't have Jesus standing in the room with us today. But there's some things that can happen right here, right now, in this congregation, in this community, in this city, in this county. Acts of love that will remain and stay. And when every time we choose love over suspicion, when we choose love over defensiveness, when we choose love over hatred, when we choose love of unity over division, guess what? Those are the things that are going to stick around for a long time. And we're acting like mature adults who know Jesus. He gives another analogy. He says it's like looking in a mirror versus looking face to face. Now back then, they didn't have like perfectly clear mirrors like we had today. They were, they were a little more fuzzy, so you couldn't see. So he's saying it's like you can kind of see partially, but you can't really see fully clearly. I would say it's kind of like this. You know, if you've got your smartphone and you were on the other line across the city and we were talking to each other in a video conference call, it's kind of cool. I can see your face. I can hear your voice. I can see your facial expressions. But oh my there's nothing like being able to, to put my arms around you in the flesh and hold you. You know, my wife, my kids, to, to put my arms around them, my mom and others. And some of you, just to put my arms around you, that's real. And that's what Paul is saying here. Right now, it's like we're, we're, we, we, there's some things we know, but even with God's word, it's still dim because right now we're living by faith, but someday we're going to live by sight. And we're going to see Jesus. And this fullness of this kingdom is just going to be unleashed on this planet. And we're going to see him for who he is. And all the stuff that seems dim now, all the songs we sing, all the prayers we pray uh, with tears in our eyes, all the stuff, you know, the video stuff, the pastors getting sick the night before they're supposed to preach, all that stuff's going to fade away. Guess what's going to stick around? Love. Love is going to stick around. It's still going to be here. And those acts of love that you and I display today will still get to be on display when that full perfect time comes, when our Lord Jesus returns. You see, gifts and abilities, they gain lots of attention in this age, but they're only temporary. What will last are faith and hope and love. And love, it's the climax of the Christian life, friend. It's the climax of the Christian life. You never are looking more like your Savior and Lord Jesus Christ than when you are acting in love. It's the highest. You can't go any higher. You know, you could, you could be a, a seminary graduate. You could wax eloquent in, in systematic theology. And you could have all your books of the Bible memorized front to back. But there's nothing higher than loving one another in the name of Jesus Christ. So Paul, he speaks of all these things. He says that, that love is always the answer. Love's always better. Love is always clear. And love is always, right? He says that, but I mean, is this just like Paul just going on poetically because maybe it's Valentine's Day soon and he wanted to write a, a love poem thinking, oh, this is going to be really great. You know, pastors, they're going to use this thousands of years from now when they, you know, are standing between a groom and a bride and they're about to get married. It's going to be really cool and everybody's going to cry and, and, you know, their hearts are going to be warm. No, Paul's not writing it for that reason, although it's great to use it for that reason. He's writing it because he knows something about this God that we serve. And he has a scriptures, a Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, all 39 books that go back and reveal to him. And he's talked with Jesus. He's, he's been revealed things by the Spirit. He knows, he knows that love is always the answer. He knows that it's absolutely essential. 
First of all, we know that love is an essential attribute of the God we know and serve. That's why it's, it's always the right answer. It's an essential attribute of the God we know and serve. It's rooted in him. You see, we love because God is full of love. In fact, God is love according to 1 John. We saw this last week when God revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, right? What did he say? Exodus chapter 34 verses 6 and 7 when God introduces or reintroduces himself to Moses and says, this is what I want my people to always remember. He says this, the Lord passed before him being Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in what? Steadfast love. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. This is who he is. This is who he is. And so Paul's writing this, love is all the answer, always the answer. Why? Because God is full of it. He's full of love. He's merciful and gracious. He abounds in steadfast love, unconditional love, covenant-keeping love with his people. Well, Paul knows this about God. He says it's an essential nature, essential attribute of the God we know and serve. He says, I'm also writing this because it's essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we've received and that we proclaim. It's essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we've received and that we proclaim. Love is the answer because it's at the core of the gospel. Think about this. Many of you know this. John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Every time we quote that verse to help somebody see the good news about Jesus, guess what is the first thing that comes out of the mouth of God? I'm a loving God. That's why I sent my son Jesus. It's at the core of the gospel. Well, not only that, Romans 5, 8, right? It says this, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us it's the manifestation of his love is the gospel that's what it is it's a it's a message of love for hurting sinful broken hell deserving sinners like you and me and God says I love you that's why I sent my son First John 4, 9 continues on. This, this, this love theme is not just something Paul pulled out of the air, right? It says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is how God's love is on display, friends. Every time you tell someone the gospel, you are living in love. Love is always the answer. Love is always the answer, especially when we're sharing the gospel. It's centered on God's love made manifest in giving us his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins and rise from the dead. Friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ here today, you may be sitting here or watching online today, maybe thinking to yourself, you know what? The church is full of all kinds of messages. I hear judgment. I hear, uh, I hear uh, narrow-mindedness. I hear all these things. Yeah, you know what? Sometimes we really mess up the message. But I, hear, I want you to hear right now, here today, the message of the gospel is that God loves sinners just like you and just like me. That is our message. Love is always the answer. It's always the answer. Well, love is also the essential element to demonstrate that we belong to God's family. <laughs> this, this, is, this stuff, love is always the answer, friends. 1 John 4, 19 to 21. We love, meaning each other, because he first loved us. If anyone says, oh, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a what? He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he cannot see cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we've seen, we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Guess what? You know, you can look around this room and you say, well, I kind of know those people. Are they family? Here's how to know. Do they love? 
Do they love? Do they love in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? But do they love? Do they love? Friend, there's no other test that we can give to one another. There's no exam. There's no fill in the blank. There's no essay. It's not graded on the curve. It's just this. Are you displaying the love that you've received from your God and Father? That's the test. That's the test. And I think that today in our age, we're under a test right now. We're under a test. Are we going to try and come up with other things that are going to prove that we belong to God and yet hate our brother and hate our sister and hate a watching world? Are we going to say, no, no, we're going to resist. We're going to put down our fist and we're going to say, love is always the answer. The way I show that I'm in the family is that I love. I love. Finally, love is, an essential, is essential to our Christian witness. Love is essential to our Christian witness. Jesus said this before he ascended back to heaven. John 13, 34 to 35. He says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And here's why it's important, Jesus says. This is why it's always the answer. By this, our love for one another, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Friend, it's not our our doctrinal statement as important as that is. It's not our church structure. It's not the building. It's not whether or not we have a wanna programs or not. All those things are good decisions we have to make, but the way the world will see that we belong to Jesus is if we have love for one another. That's the test. That's the test. It's essential to our Christian witness. We might as well pack up, close the doors, There is no mission strategy. There is no church strategy, no church growth strategy that we can employ around this place that will make any difference if we're not loving toward one another. Will our world look at us and find a loving community of people? Will our Lord and Savior look down? Will our God and Father look down and say, I know they're mine. You know why? Because they're loving each other. Love is always the answer. So we come back to our original question from our friend today, Tina Turner. What's love got to do with it? Everything. Everything. Love is always the answer. Love is always better than anything you could ever dream or imagine. Love is always clear, friend. It's not ambiguous. And love is always, because it has no end. It will outlast everything we do in this world. Love is always the answer. The attitude of our day, it's jaded, It's cynical, it's skeptical, deceptive, it's narcissistic, always thinking of itself. It's guarded, it's closed off, and individualistic. And friends, if we give in to the spirit of this day and age, we will become closed off emotionally, we'll become closed off mentally, we'll be closed off physically even, with our dukes up and our fences really high, saying, I cannot open myself up because this world has made me calloused. That's not the answer. Love is always the answer. We cannot fight fire with fire. We fight fire with love, friends. The answer to our callousness, hatred of our, callous hatred of our day is not with coldness, but with love. And in closing, I was trying to think, you know, what, what could I say in a way that would be a great story to illustrate how love is always the answer? And as I thought about it, I, I couldn't think of anything that really adequately met the measure of what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 13. But as I thought about it, I thought, you know what? Here's the illustration. It's you. It's you. You're the illustration. You see, I've seen how you've loved. 
each other. I've seen how you loved me 20 years ago, coming to this church and feeling broken and feeling like I didn't have hope, that I didn't have a future, feeling like I didn't have a community, feeling like I didn't have family. And when I came here with a broken mom and a future wife coming here, I've experienced love from you. You've loved me. You've loved my wife and my mom and my kids. I've seen love on display all over the place with leaders that have taught kids in Awana just like mine to show them the love of Jesus. Every time, I, I, it seems like every second or third student that we baptize in this tank, guess what? They talk about a, a leader who loved them, that led them to Christ. You are the illustration. This church is, has been faithful to love God's people, love each other, love this community for over five decades. But we feel tempted today to begin to put up our dukes, to become calloused, to become narcissistic, to start putting up walls and separating each other because that's the spirit of the day. But that's not the answer, friends. Love is the answer. Love is the answer. And so our challenge today is to ask ourselves, although the days have been tough, what kind of church are we going to be? And it's not up to the elders. It's not up to the pastors. It's not up to the staff. It's up to you and to me. It's up to us together to say, who, who, with whom do I have my odds with today? With whom have I been called today? Who haven't I called that I know has been hurting for quite a while? Who, who, what can I do? I love watching our small groups. I hear about a need that's in a small group. It's amazing to me. I, I, small group, you know, somebody's going into surgery or they're having some procedure and I'm worried, how are we gonna love this family? How are we gonna care for this family? I find out, I call up their small group leader. Oh, we got meals scheduled for them. We're caring for them. We're gonna go visit them. We're gonna care. Oh my goodness. You're the illustration. But we've got, we've got a challenge before us. Will we allow God to speak and say love is always the answer? Today, tomorrow, next Sunday, and beyond. Will love always be the answer at this church? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love endures forever. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you that we do not have to wonder what love looks like. If we ever forget what love looks like, all we have to do is open the pages of the scripture and go back and remember a Messiah, Savior, Son of God, who's hanging on a wooden cross, bleeding for the sins of the world. That is the greatest demonstration of your love. And because we've been bought with that precious blood of our Savior and Messiah, we have called, been called to be people of love. But Father, today we live in an age that is cold, that is calloused, that, that feels like we ought to put up walls all around us. Oh, I pray, teach us, show us, uh, help us to see in greater ways how love is always the answer. I pray that it would be the answer for families here today that are feeling hurt and broken, for individuals that are feeling hurt and broken. Father, for those of us that have been living resentful and bitter, bitter lead us to repentance. Show us the way forward, Father, that love is always the answer. And I pray, Father, that as the world watches on and we think about the future of this church, when we think about how are we going to be effective in, in leading out and, and working out this mission that you put in front of us, oh, I pray that we would remember love is always the answer. We want to lead in love today, embracing your love that you've given us to your, through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. God bless you. Go in love today.